good morning, everyone. I hope you can sing along with those songs. Those were great, great reminders of wonderful truth. Good to see you today. You're looking pretty good? Feeling pretty good? Yeah? All right. Amen. Good. Had your caffeine? Everybody's good? Some of you are like, yeah, no, I used to drink caffeine, but I don't drink caffeine anymore. I understand. I understand. There's still hope. Hang in there. There's still hope. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, enough of being silly. It's welcome, welcome time and good to have you here. Thankful that you came. It's good to have these folks with us for the very first time. We make our first-time visitors sit on the very front row, right up here. Well, second row in this case. I'm just kidding if you're a first-time visitor. Uh, John and Rosemary are long-time members of the church, and we're blessed to have you here. It's good to see you. Really good to see you. Speaking of exciting things, uh, Steve and Debbie are left, have left now. Uh, Steve was just up here, but uh, yesterday was their 44th wedding anniversary. Isn't that exciting? So praise the Lord for that. Yeah, give them a hand. Absolutely. Steve has put up with a lot. I mean, Debbie has put up a lot. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean, precious folks. Anyway, we're blessed to, to know them and have them. So uh, tonight, just a quick announcement, our youth will be meeting at 6 p.m., Okay, so if you can come, we've been really enjoying our, our time together, and uh, that'll happen again tonight. Uh, also, right after this is a quarterly business meeting, so if you got the information, hopefully you did. I'm sure Neil will have more copies for you afterwards, but if you want to stay and uh, get an update on how things are after the first quarter, we'd love to have you be here for that. Okay, All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just thank Him for our time together. Lord, as always, it's a joy to be together. Uh, it's good to laugh. It's good to just have fun with one another. Good to be in the presence of one another. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for all that you do in these days, even in the times that we don't understand, we don't see any way through. We thank you that it is always clear to you. And we thank you that you're always in control and, and are doing your work. And we just count it such a privilege to be a part of what you're doing. And so thank you, Father, for this. Now we would ask that whatever we don't understand, we pray that you would help us understand. Uh, whatever we might be missing, we pray that you'd put it in our hearts. And we pray that whatever we may be unwilling to listen to, that you would help us to be willing. Lord, we understand how much our sinfulness works against us, uh, but, much, but you do even much more so. And so we need you and we depend on you. Uh, we lift up our hearts to you this morning and count it a great honor and a joy to be your servants. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, stand with me. We're in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 22, if you're able. If not, it's certainly okay to stay seated. Uh, but we do want to honor the Lord in our reading this morning. All right. Picking up in verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. All right, you may be seated. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word. I've titled the message this morning, Why P. 
people abandon the faith? Or rather, should be a question, why do people abandon the faith? This week, as I often do, always do, uh, I was sitting down at my desk to begin to work on the next section, this particular section, for the sermon today. And uh, Debbie, not knowing this, sent me two articles of uh, two people who were part of a high-profile family, one is, and the other is a part of that high-profile ministry. Uh, I was going to read some of the article to you, but I thought it would be just enough to be able to say to you, both of them now, one of the family members... And one of, this, workers of the, this worker in the ministry have both um, abandoned the faith, basically. They have rejected being Christians. And that was uh, the balance of the article, if you will. Now, there's some things I can't tell you. I can't tell you really anything more than the article said. I don't know anything about these people's lives. I don't know what life was like for them when they grew up. I don't know what struggles they were facing. I don't know what they saw, what they didn't see. I can't tell you any of that kind of thing. I guess basically what their real story was. I only have the article to go by. And you know, we have to be careful with what we read. Certainly you understand that. But what I can tell you is that these articles are just a sampling of what we're seeing in our culture across the world. People who have professed a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, served Him in ministry perhaps, only to abandon uh, what they said that they have believed. And it is an alarming thing. If you read my devotions, you know that this week, uh, with some of these thoughts in mind, I put together one of those devotions just talking about just that. And the sad reality is, as we've already alluded to, is that many of these people that I'm talking about, whether these two or others, uh, grew up in godly homes, parents who loved the Lord God, uh, did everything that they knew how to to share Christ with the children and uh, many of them went to Christian schools where they heard the gospel regularly, uh, sat under the teaching of the word of the Lord, sat under the teaching of godly teachers, even if it was just some other subject. Uh, people who have faithfully throughout the years attended godly churches where the gospel has been preached and the Bible has been clearly articulated. These are people we could say that have heard the truth about God. And so it leaves us with the incredible question of why did they walk away? What is wrong? It's really a, an amazing thing when you think about it. And, and so that's really the question here as, a, as we begin to look at these verses today. Why? Why are you walking away? What is it that has caused you to come to this conclusion? Well, let's look beginning in verse 16 as we jump right into the text this afternoon or this morning and and see if we can come up with a couple conclusions as to what the Lord tells us. Rereading verse 16 again, we hear Matthew saying, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Now that is a staggering statement there. And Matthew just gives us one little snippet of what's happened. He's covering volumes of circumstances and situations in just a few words. And I know some of you would say, I wish our pastor would do that. But no, you're not going to be so fortunate, okay? But anyway, think with me for a minute now what's been going on. I'm not going to go backwards and review all of the context. You already know most of this if you've been following along. This was after, immediately after, at least within a very short time period of the healing of the leper. Okay, you remember that well? This was after the healing of the centurion's servant. 
This was after the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And so, very simply, Matthew then tells us, because of all of those events, more and more people who heard about what Jesus was doing without really even knowing who he was, but just saw what he was doing, brought their people, their loved ones to him. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if somebody's fixing a loved one of problems that they've had all of their life and nobody could touch that, you'd go too, right? I mean, it's very easy to understand the thinking of these people. Because the truth is, according to what we're told here, is that Jesus healed him. It didn't matter what the situation was. And so much so, he was even healing demoniacs, people who were filled with demon spirits. With a spoken word, he cast them out. And apparently, it didn't matter where these people were from. It didn't matter what the need was. We're not told any of that. We're not told where they were from, as I said. We're not told what they even believed. We don't really know where these people were spiritually. We don't know what they had been taught, what they hadn't been taught. Now, we can make some assumptions, and I think we'd be pretty close. Most of these people would have been Jewish, probably. But we do have the the centurion himself, who was not. But they would have at least heard about this one called the Messiah. They would have heard about all of these amazing things that were happening. But the Lord didn't leave any requirements upon them. He just healed their needs. He fixed it right there on the spot. And I have to imagine if you just with me do this, just try to be there in that moment and and hear the voices of the people, Uh, the On the one hand, you hear the moanings and the groanings of the people who are ill, right? The people, this person, or the people, whomever they were, uh, in this case, one, I guess, with a demon in them, wailing, no doubt, doing whatever kind of shrieking and whatever. And again, I'm I'm making up some stuff here, uh, but it's, it's good, I think, to dig into the text as long as we don't make it doctrine, But we have to assume some things that we're pretty accurate about, I believe. And so it must have been nothing else than an incredible scene. With no telling multitudes of people continually gathering around Jesus. I'm wondering if there was some pushing and shoving going on. I mean, again, you have a loved one. And you see the crowd and you're thinking, I'm not going to sit back here. I'm going to worm my way in as close as I can get to this man so that he can see us. You know, there's no loudspeakers. There's no giant jumbo televisions. There's nothing like that. There's no way I can make myself known. And so there was certainly all of that kind of thing going on. All of this simply to fulfill what Matthew tells us in verse 17. Look at this again. He himself, Jesus, took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Oh, I mean, is there not volumes of books that could be written just from that verse right there? To take away our infirmities, to place upon himself our burdens, the things that we are diseased from and carry so heavily in our hearts throughout all of our lives a lot of times. I think all of this tells us several things about the Lord that he is a gracious God. Aren't you so thankful for that? I mean, really, aren't you grateful that God is gracious? 
and that he has the kind of heart that he does, that he is a God who loves his creation. You know, so many of the critics will say, oh, he just, yeah, created it. I'm not going to deny that, but he just flung it out there and he doesn't really care. I mean, if he cared, we wouldn't be like this. But Matthew says, no, 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 no. Look, look at this man. This is God come in the flesh. He cares about his creation. He doesn't want us to suffer. This is what Jesus is doing. He, he was sympathizing with the people's pain. He was man. He was fully man, fully God, but aware of what pain and sickness does. He was a man who understood the challenges that sin brings, not because he was sinful. He was without sin, Scripture tells us. He was God. But he understood the effects of sin as he watched humanity. And he came to help heal people from their dreaded issues. I think we could say that he hates sin, the effects of what sin has done to mankind. This is our God, beloved. He hates what sin has caused. I praise his name, he's come to do something about it. One commentator said this, he knew the agony, I want you to listen to your heart this morning, the bewilderment, the confusion, the despair, the frustration. Now the writer says of the disease and sickness and the physical pain, but you fill in the gaps with your life and what you've experienced. Jesus came to fix that. And what you and I understand is that he didn't come to fix it necessarily in this life, but he certainly did come to fix it for the life to come, right? Now, the joy of all of this, though, is that we see that Jesus, again, has no desire for his people to suffer. Now, unless there are times where he sees fit for us to suffer through certain things in order to make us the people he wants us to be. And James is very clear about that. Very, very clear. If you've been in our Wednesday night study, you know Alistair Begg was just talking the last two weeks about James chapter 1. Let me read those verses for you. James writes, this is the brother of Jesus, by the way, the half-brother of Jesus. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You're like, what? That is totally opposed to anything my mind would think is right in a human sense, right? But the Lord says, no. Consider it joy because the testing of your faith produces endurance. And we could go through all of that. If you want to join us on Wednesday nights, we'd love to have you. It's a wonderful study. James will say, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, in other words, again, there are times where the Lord knows that we must suffer through certain things because it causes us to reach out to him. He wants us to need him. This is the God that he is. He loves us. He is gracious to us. He wants to fix the problems of our lives. Let's just be these people for a minute that we know he has healed. Can you imagine just for a minute? Try to do this. Imagine you're the leper. And I know we did this a couple weeks ago, but let's put it back in our minds again. Imagine that you're the leper. Instantly, you're healed. I mean, instantly. Just because Jesus heals you. Now, you're able to go about what would be a quote-unquote normal life, right? Amazing. That you can enter back into society. You can enjoy the blessedness of what it means to go back to work. 
And you say, no, that's not a blessing. <laughs> yeah, it would be a blessing if you'd been a leper outside the colony and not able to be around anybody, right? How many of you all have been feeling of the great joy of what it would be to be out in the community again because of what we've experienced this last year, right? You know what this is all about. You know what I'm talking about here. Well, what about the centurion's servant? You think his life was different? Think so. What about the centurion? I mean, he was a man of faith, apparently, right? According to what we read, what we learned. A man who was not a Jew, but yet he knew enough of God that he could do this work. And so do you imagine that the centurion's faith grew in Christ? Of course it did. Well, what about Peter's mother-in-law? You think her faith was grown? Absolutely. What about Peter's uh, wife? This was her mom. I imagine that she must have grown incredibly well. What about Peter himself? It would have been an amazing turnabout in these people's lives. And so all of that background, and we could go on and on and on. I could give you so many more illustrations of the love of God and what God wants to do in our lives. The question then comes, why would anyone abandon that? Why would they leave? Well, that's the question of the ages. And uh, at least the Lord now gives us, and there, there's lots of answers in the particulars, but Matthew is only recording a few. And so let's look at what Matthew says to us about the reasons why. I have labeled these this way. First, it's just too personally demanding. It's just too personally demanding. It's personally demanding. And then secondly, it's just too financially draining. These are the illustrations the Lord gives to us. Look with me again in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, to get the context of this, you understand where he was in Capernaum. And so because the crowd had now grown evidently to an overwhelming size, the Lord in his humanity, and I say that carefully because, again, we've just identified that he's both God and man, but in his humanity, he was tired. He needed a break. And so based on what he was experiencing, he says to the disciples, look, let's get in the boat and let's go over to the other side. Now, also knowing in his infinite wisdom that he had more work to do, but he would need a break. And so he gets in the boat as this God-man, and we are told that he pushes off into the shore. Now, he gave orders to go to the other side of the sea. Let me just give you a quick visual of this, um, just, so you see, just, just so you see this in your mind's eye uh, on the map. So down here is the Dead Sea. And for those of you who are watching online, you'll see I'm just showing the Sea of Galilee. That's what you're looking at in the center of your screen if you look at the very north, you'll see Capernaum. That's where Jesus has now been going through what he's been doing. And he's, we're told now he goes to the other side of the sea. And we'll pick up on all of that later. I just want you to see a visual in your mind of physically where he is now in the northern part of the country. Now, interestingly, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Mark chapter 4 tells us in verse 36 that the people were so excited about what Jesus, is, Jesus was doing that they also find boats evidently or have boats and get in them and go along behind Jesus. So here they are in this scene tagging along behind the Lord. 
Now, if I'm Jesus, because I can only be human, I'm going, ay, 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 right? I can't get away from these people, right? I love them, but good grief, enough's enough. Take a break kind of thing, right? That's our humanity speaking, but that's not the Lord. But these people were so changed by him and were so excited, they even followed along behind him. And again, the question would be, wouldn't you? I mean... Of course you would if you saw all this. All right, now, back into the text here. So once we get there, or once he gets there, a scribe, we're told, comes up to him. Now, just to help you remember who a scribe was, because this has importance. The Lord tells us these things for a reason. The scribes were the part of the religious authority of the Jews, okay, especially of the law. Their focus was on the law, closely associated with the Pharisees. We've been talking about them for a long time as religious leaders. But the scribes were also highly educated people. These were not dummies. These were people that had a lot of education under their belt. Uh, And I'm not just talking about knowledge, not necessarily talking about common sense. They were considered the higher class of the Jews. Okay, so someone that the culture around them would have a tendency to look up to. Typically, they were teachers and very, and very much not fond of people like Jesus, who was a teacher that was gathering great crowds of people who had no formal education. Okay? And they didn't like that. Now, you and I do something very similar. We may not like to admit it, but we have a tendency to put people in different categories in our minds. It is just natural as a part of our sinfulness. I don't have to tell you about the homeless guy or girl that we've talked about many times over. You drive up beside them and immediately you have some decisions to make. And those are typically spiritual decisions. What am I going to be like to this person? Am I going to look down on them? Am I going to turn the other way? And on and on it goes, right? We have a tendency to do that. Well, that's just humanity and I'm not making an excuse for it. I'm just simply saying this was the context. This is the same thing the Lord is dealing with. But yet in the midst of that um, type of personality, in the midst of who this man was and the crowds, we are told here that he comes up to Jesus and he makes an, an amazing statement. He says, look at it again, I will follow you wherever you go, wherever you go. That is a wonderful statement, isn't it? I mean, who as a teacher of the things of God would not want the students to say that? I will follow this God wherever he leads me. That's the dream of every person who loves God and wants people to follow. And you just say, what a heart of this guy. I mean, what what a heart this man has. But help me think through this for just a moment. uh, Because I think you're going to very quickly, if you haven't already seen through what's really happening here. Let's use the illustration of parenting. Uh, Sorry for those of you who are not parents right now, but your parents will get this and they'll laugh and they'll tell you about it later. If you've ever been a parent, you know that there are lots of times where your children have come to you and made some very outlandish claims, right? For instance, mommy, I'm going to live with you and daddy forever, right? Forever. I'm never leaving my bedroom. I'm going to stay with you all my life. And you go, honey, how precious that is. In your heart, you're just so exhilarated, right? You just want that so badly. You want your kids to be with you until they hit teenage years. And then you have a different opinion, right? Things change along the way. 
right? So <clears throat> part of what you also realize is that even though they're very sincere, they really don't know what they're talking about, right? They just don't know. And sincerity is wonderful, but it also doesn't necessarily mean people know what they're talking about. And that was the case here. What you know and what I know is that one day those precious children are going to be ready to leave, right? Their wings are going to grow. They're going to be ready to, they're starting to stand on the edge of the nest and eventually it's time for them to jump out and fly. And you may see them a couple times a year if you're fortunate, but life has a way of changing, right? And life just goes on. Now, again, all of that was just kind of a silly statement to help us understand what's really happening here. The scribe's claim was, I'll go with you anywhere. I'll go with you anywhere. Very much along the same lines. Very sincere, probably very full of determination, have no reason to believe anything other than that. He had seen what the Lord had been doing. He was witness to this, ready to do whatever Jesus wanted him to do. But again, even the most sincere heart can have the wrong motives. Okay? Even the most sincere heart can have the wrong motives. Maybe, just maybe, his claim was, I will follow you because I will be better noticed if I follow you. I don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us that. I'm not going to make that true cardinal theology or doctrine. But I think it's realistic. I mean, think of who the guy was already. He was already well-known. He was already a leader And so this would just elevate him a little bit more. And we already know from what we've learned over the past studies that religious leaders of Jesus' day love to be noticed. So I'm just saying, maybe. I think Jesus was on to him, though. Look at verse 20 when he says to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, you and I kind of want to read between the lines there a little bit, and we're going to go, isn't there a little bit more dialogue before this? Well, maybe, but I think Jesus cut to the chase, and he's basically wanting him to understand, I'm so glad that you want to follow me, and I think that would have been the heart of the Lord, wouldn't it? I'm so glad you want to follow me. I'm thankful that you want to follow me. But just so you know, you see that fox over there? Maybe there was a fox that was running by, I don't know. He's got a house to live in. You see the little bird there? He's got a nest. I don't have any of that. Ah. Oh. Well, uh, okay. It's all right. We can do this. Right? What was Jesus really saying? Jesus was saying, it's not going to be easy. Is that what you want? You sure about that? I don't have the most simplest of things to my name. And that would have been a big deal. Again, you and I make judgments on things like this. We look at a big house and we say, wow, those folks must have a lot of money. And inside you cringe a little bit because you're kind of like, I'd like to have that much money. Right? You drive by somebody else's house and you go, ugh, look at that house. Sure, I'm glad I don't live there. We just make judgments like this all the time, right? So I'm sure Jesus is saying to him, listen, it's not going to be easy. I don't have anything. My requirements are personally demanding. That's what he's saying. I don't have anything of value to my name, no possessions. I don't have a house. I don't have the basic shelter. In fact, we know that Jesus spent a lot of time with Peter in his house at Capernaum. He spent time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany because he had no place of his own. 
And so it's a real challenge here. And I think the truth is, beloved, that many people think along these lines, and that is, if I have Jesus and I have salvation, that's really all I need. Well, that's a good start. I mean, that is what we want, right? But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus doesn't leave us just with giving us salvation. Now, I'm not talking about works here, but Jesus in turn will respond back to us after we have enjoyed the glorious moment of salvation and will say, now I want you to follow me. Uh, Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means total dedication. Without question. And that's the problem that a lot of people have, is they want Jesus and they want his life, but they don't want the cost. You know the one that Jesus said... In Matthew 16, and we'll get to this someday in the next century. Verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself, okay? Uh, I can do that. I'm pretty sure I can do that. And so Jesus says, okay, good. Let's add the second part. Take up your cross and follow me. I don't like that part. Because they would have understood what that is. And I'm not going to teach through all of that, but they would have understood what that meant. That's a criminal's death, at least in their minds. And he's saying to them, I want you to follow me without hesitation, no matter where I lead you. And it's true. The one reason people leave is because most people want the excitement that comes from Jesus. They want the glamour, the glitz, the high profile stuff, the benefit that they get. Mostly to have what they want in this life, which is notoriety of some sort some type of power or at least influence over others. And there is a certain sense in which those things come with Jesus. Certainly money and all the worldly accolades that go along with following Jesus. And certainly this part, please keep me from all pain and suffering. Right? That's the Jesus that most people want to follow. But the real call that Jesus gives is, I want you to let go of everything that personally belongs to you in possessions, at least to stick with the context for what I want. Abandon your wants, be willing to, and come and follow me. Which again, now we know, is usually too much of a price to pay. So when it gets to that point, people often leave. And most people are no different than, let's use the example of a soldier. I was thinking about this because I have two soldiers in my family. You know, there is a reason why uh, the military has gained their wisdom in calling young men and young ladies too, but I'm talking about specifically for the battlefield is because young men are those guys who, you know, they just think that the military life is going to be all this, right? Usually it's the... I want to do the stuff that nobody else does. I want to blow up stuff legally. Right? I want to shoot big guns and I want to jump out of airplanes and I want to have that sleek and fit body and I want to have that cool looking uniform and all of that has its place. Right? There's a certain appeal to all of that until war breaks out. And when Uncle Sam says, excuse me, young man, you know all that stuff I gave you? I need you to do something for me. Go over there or wherever, right? You know the story. You know how it works. 
And that's when all of a sudden it starts losing its appeal real quickly. My dad, I remember said many years ago, talking to one of my boys, said, you need to understand this, that war loses its appeal in about 30 seconds after you watch your buddy being blown up or your squad being destroyed or whatever it is. All of a sudden, all the glitz and glamour of what it meant to be a soldier and all those desires of being a soldier come down to one thing, where you really are in all of this. And that's kind of the closest in my mind I can get to as an illustration for where I think a lot of people are. You could put other categories in there like an athlete, you know, who wants all the fame and the glory and the millions of dollars, but they don't want to show up for practice. The tough stuff. But listen, God didn't call us to be the general. He called us to be the private. He called us to obey at every command without questions. Now, let me clarify. God doesn't mind questions. What God does not want is questioning. You hear that? God can accept all of our questions and delights in us questions, our questions, but he doesn't want us to question him. He knows what he's doing. What he wants is obedience. And that's what he was saying to this man. Because he knows that in our obedience, we get something more glorious than the world can ever, ever, ever hope to give to us, which is the eternal riches of the kingdom of heaven. But until then, he wants us to know this is war. This is battleground. This is not the easy life that you're wanting. This is not just about the glitz and the glamour. This is war. This is where the enemy roams around seeking whom he will devour, First Peter. right? He is on the prowl constantly by stealing from us. By lying to us, by deceiving us, killing us if he can, if the Lord so wills that, or making us think, hey, this is going to be a great easy life if you follow Jesus, just go and it's going to be awesome, and turn right around and throw it in our faces when Jesus never said any of that, never once. John 16, 33, you know the verse as well as I do, in the world you will have tribulation, but don't focus on that. Focus on what's coming. That's what Jesus promoted. And so you and I are called to be hated by the world. Jesus said that, right? If the world hates me, they're going to hate you. You will be hated by the world. We are called to point out sin lovingly, graciously, kindly, and point people to where they are missing the mark in Scripture and point them back to Christ who saves. And at the same time, we're called to give up everything that's important to us even our lives if necessary. I don't know the whole story of our brother in Canada, the pastor. Uh, you can fill me in if you know more. Uh, I was looking at this from an um, airplane view, if you will. I'm talking about the man who just spent some time in jail for opening the church. Uh, we would ask the question, why did he go to jail or why did he do that? And we'd get a lot of answers, probably would be, most people would say, well, yeah, because he didn't want the government telling him what to do. Um, maybe he would say he didn't want anybody pushing him around or his church around. I don't know. But I would surmise that his real heart, if he truly loves Jesus, and I'm only making that assumption because I just don't know him, would be that he did it because he was commanded to by God. 
When God said in Hebrews 10, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Now when God wrote that, he understood the context of what the Hebrews were dealing with. And yet God still said, I want you to follow me before you follow everybody else. And so there are times where God requires of us to make decisions that are not going to be popular. And certainly ones that the world will not like necessarily because we'll be going against them. But our call is to follow God. But this again is where the divide usually comes. And Jesus said to the scribe, in fact, after Jesus does this or says this to the scribe, interestingly, we hear nothing from him. Nothing. The scribe I'm talking about. There's no response. And so I can only imagine in my mind is that he hears Jesus make his claim about having nothing himself would say, okay, yeah, I'm not sure I want to go that route. And so must turn and go the other direction. And that's where we're left with him. We don't see him anymore. But look at verse 21 because we get a second thing here. I already mentioned this. Too financially draining. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. So evidently the Lord had called him. He made very clear that by the, I'm making an assumption here, by the response that this man made. Now, what you may not understand, some of you will because you've studied the scripture in this context before, but what most of you may not understand is that this appears to be about a grieving man over his dead father which would be a very tender, sensitive situation. But that's really not what this is all about. In Jesus' day, the custom was for a young man to stay with his father in business or whatever his father's trade was to help him until his father died and then there would be an inheritance that would be left for the son. And so what this son is really saying to Jesus is, I'll be glad to follow you wherever you want me to go, but for now I need to stay here and take care of my dad until I get my inheritance. Now the problem with that is, is that that could have been years. This guy's dad could have still been a fairly young man, like all of you, and had lots of years left. And so for this guy, the demand of Jesus was too much. Too much to leave everything and the things that you get. And so again, here the inheritance was the issue. So evidently this young man wasn't willing to follow Jesus after hearing that he would have to give up something that would be potentially life-changing for him. That's what a lot of people look forward to, right? They look forward to the day when their parents leave that maybe mom and dad left us something. Maybe I'll get this. Maybe I'll get that. Maybe I'll have an easier life because they'll have set me up, right? People think like that. And so the Lord's point is, if money and possessions are your focus, you're not worthy of me. Let the things of this world go. Let the cares of this world go. Let the things of the world take care of the world. Notice verse 22. This is why Jesus said what he did. Follow me, he says, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now that sounds so heartless, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus doesn't have a care in the world about this guy, just this egomaniac who says, follow me, and who cares about your dead dad? Well, that just wouldn't stand to reason because of everything we've just watched about Jesus. So what was he saying here? Well, what he meant was, listen, people are going to die. People are going to die. Your parents, your grandparents, it doesn't matter who it is. So you follow me because the physically dead, listen carefully, 
can be cared for even by the spiritually dead. Right? It doesn't take a Christian to be a funeral director. In fact, I don't know what the number would be, but there are lots of people who are in the funeral business, a good business, an honorable business, who have no cares about God at all. I know that because I have worked with them. I worked part-time for a funeral home in Lynchburg, and I was shocked at the ungodliness of some of the workers. Because I went into it blindly thinking, this is going to be wonderful because these people are going to be so, so caring and nurturing. And they were for the most part. I'm not saying that they weren't caring, but they certainly had no concern for the things of God. And so I think Jesus is simply saying here, look, people are going to die. I certainly care about your father. But the reality is you don't need to hang around to take care of your dad because anybody can bury somebody. What I want you to do is I want you to follow me. Even if that means you give up what is the most precious at this point in your life, which in this guy's case was the financial status. Now, thankfully, I will say this. As much as I was complaining about the bad funeral directors, and I'll give them a little plug here. They didn't ask me to do this, but Ryan Funeral Home, godly people. Right over here in Quinquay, Rockersville, Standardsville area. Wonderful folks. Just a little plug for them. So there are some people who truly love the Lord and really want to serve because of the Lord. So anyway, back to the point here. The Lord's point is, if you want to have nothing, you must have nothing before me, even your personal comfort and your finances. And listen, even pastors can lose sight of that. I just have to tell you that. Uh, you know, there's a reason, you may not know this, but there are a lot of churches that have a tough time getting I'm talking about small churches that have a hard time getting men to serve there. You know why that is? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. A, because it's not popular and exciting, because that's the picture that's promoted so much today, right? You got all these young guys coming out, and the first thing they want is the big high-profile churches. That's number one. That's kind of a side note to this. But the second one is, there's not much money in it. That's just reality. Now, I am not complaining about you, so don't hear that. I've told you many times over, and if you haven't heard this before, you have taken well, good care of us over the years. We're not complaining about, I'm not complaining about that. I'm simply making a point, and I know this firsthand. Let me give you another illustration. Just recently, uh, you may not know this, but Pastor Hamp and I often are asked on rotational basis to go to the Colonnades, which is a retirement facility on the other side of town, to um, do a Vesper service, they call it. And uh, so at 5 o'clock on any given Sunday of a month, they'll call us and ask us to come. And before COVID hit, they would give us a little bit of an honorarium to come. And that was very kind of them. Uh, no, wonderful that they did that. Well, after COVID, you know, all that shut down. In fact, just Easter Sunday was the first Sunday they were allowed to come back together at all in person for those services. They were all doing it by uh, going into the rooms online, kind of like we, we do here with our camera. What was that uh, called... Um, I don't know, direct TV, not direct TV, but you know, they, they send it direct into the rooms. Closed circuit, thank you. Closed circuit. And so we would go and we would preach the message like that. And I remember the first time I went after we were asked to come back, because there was a time period there where we couldn't even do that. Um, a young lady asked me about um, would I consider coming back again. And I said, I'd love to come back. She said, you would? I said, yeah, it'd be great. I said, in fact, why don't we set it up for the every second Sunday of the month? <gasps> 
that would be wonderful. I said, well, I can't do any more than that. And you've got other guys that are coming because it was a rotational thing. And she said, no, actually we don't. I said, really? What happened, just COVID stuff? She said, no. The problem is we can't pay them to come. And so they said they weren't coming. So I said, well, don't worry about that. She said, you'll come without us paying you? Of course I will. I'm not coming because you pay me. You don't? No, I'm not coming because you pay me, right? She was just elated. Now, I'm not saying anything about me. I'm just saying the tendency, even among people of God, is I'll do this if I get something out of it, right? And the Lord is addressing all of that here, I believe. He's saying, look, no, I don't have anything to give you. But I promise I'll provide your needs. I don't have anything myself. So this is going to demand of you personally. It's going to demand of you financially. But I want you to come. And it can be very challenging. Now Matthew, let's go on. I'm going to give you this little freebie here because Matthew doesn't give us this particular person, but Luke does. There's a third person actually that comes to Jesus. And it comes from chapter 9 of Luke's gospel in verse 61. Another also, we're told, says, this is again Luke, Luke 9, 61. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And so we have the same kind of scenario here as we do with the other people, where this man is evidently willing to go with Jesus, but he's still really tied to those that are very sensitive to him, his family. And we can understand that, right? Family to us is everything. So I suppose that we could say another reason that people stop following Jesus is for personal relationships or the loss of personal relationships, however you want to put that down. The lack of personal relationships, but probably more clear would, clearly would be the loss of personal relationships. And so notice in verse 62 of Luke's gospel what he says, what Jesus says in response. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, most of you all looking at our congregation have done some kind of planting in a garden. Uh, if some of you grew up on a farm, you know even more specifically what Jesus is referring to here. This is a farming expression, meaning that you can't plow a straight line while you're looking back, right? I know this personally. Because my dad used to love to have gardens, and one particular garden was down on the lower basin of the riverbank, and that's where he would plant the potatoes and all the things that got all those rich nutrients from the water being close. And he had this rear time tiller that I used to love to operate. It was fun. It wasn't like one of those that was telling the early group that Pastor Hamp had, or many of you have had, where the front tines are there, and it'll beat you to death when you're trying to go through the dirt. This is one of those real fancy rear tine ones. <clears throat> and dad would say, okay, I want you to go down and I want you to till up the garden down there today or whenever it was. Okay. Well, I thought as a boy, it was so cool what that thing would do, ripping the dirt up and tearing it apart. I'd be down looking at I'm like this and I'm looking at the dirt, looking behind me like this. And before I knew it, I'm like going off to this number and dad would come down and he'd say, uh, what's going on? Sorry. That's not going to help me. <laughs> going over there like, I need to go right down the row like that. And dad would do that. You know, just kind of, see that stick down there? Aim for that stick. <laughs> Keep your eyes on that. Because he knew just what would happen, happened. And so Jesus saying to these people who made their living from 
plowing fields would understand that you can't plow behind the horse or the oxen or whatever and look behind you and get it right. You can't take your hands off the plow. You just can't do that. You got to stay focused. And so I think Jesus is simply saying to this guy, you're never going to be able to do the kind of job that I'm requiring of you if you hold back or if you're always looking back. I think that's the better way to say it. If you're looking back to how life once was. You hear that? How life once was. And Jesus would say that because he knew life is going to change for this man and everybody else he calls. And we need to hear that. There is going to be a change. He will demand it. I remember many years ago, and I've probably told you this, so forgive me if I have. When I first started in ministry, I learned through various circumstances that when the Lord calls, you just have to go. You can't serve God and you can't serve one another without there being circumstances where they interrupt your normal life. And you just have to put things down and you just go. I had to learn that in some tough ways. There are times where you don't want to go. The times where the flesh just says, I'm in the middle of something. I don't want to deal with this right now. Okay, can I just be honest with that? There are times where we just don't, it's kind of like you don't want to show up on Sunday mornings. Right? You get it. What's the same thing with anybody else? You're tempted to look back and say, man, it was a lot easier in those days. I remember when I was working in manufacturing and every day was just Monday through Friday. By the time the end of the day came, I was done. My mind wasn't on it until the next morning. And when Friday evening came, I wasn't back in gear on my mind until Monday morning. That's just the way it worked. It was great. But I learned, as many of you all have learned, that just because... Uh, God calls you, or because God calls you, there are a lot of changes that occur. I remember one time being up in my attic, our, our attic in Lynchburg, and uh, I had been hired as the new associate pastor of the church, and I had just come out of this Monday through Friday kind of life, and, and I was used to the weekends. Of course, church was always a part of that, but I remember the pastor saying to me, okay, Bruce, you can have Mondays off. And I thought, wow, cool. That's pretty awesome. I mean, you used to hate Mondays, right? Mondays was the day nobody wanted to go back to work. Well, Mondays became my best day. They were awesome. I remember being up in the attic one time working on something, and it was hot and whatnot, and I was back tucked away in the corner, and that was the days when we had those big block cell phones. Remember the things that would hurt you, right, if you throw them at somebody? Not that I ever did that. <laughs> but my phone rang. <clears throat> and I realized it was something of a ministry aspect to it, and I got really mad. And I remember thinking, don't they know it's my day off? And then God just touched my heart and he said, Bruce, hello, I called you. You're on my time. And I remember arguing with him and saying, no, I'm in the attic, Lord. <laughs> my day off. No, you belong to me. You gave me your heart and I ask you to follow me. And you said yes. So here's what we're doing today. Okay, Lord. And there have been a lot of situations like that over the years. And it's really tempting to look back, especially when people you love are involved. All right? Let's throw them into the mix. It's one thing when it's just you. <clears throat> but, you know, following Jesus is not like anything else because everything that you do for Jesus involves your family. Right? 
It's not just you alone. Now, you may be in a house where you don't have believing family, but it still affects them. They're still affected by your relationship with the Lord. And family is involved with everything that happens. So we could say ministry is not just for you, but it's for the family too. Just putting it very clearly. And at times, listen, even as much as you desire to be a part of ministry and helping people, people can hurt you. That's not a newsflash, is it? People are hurtful. You ever been hurt by somebody? Hello? Well, ministry hurts. That's just reality. People don't agree. They have their own way of thinking about things. And people say and do things. And it just hurts. And we are capable of hurting back. And so oftentimes family gets caught up in the mix of all of that. Which makes you feel like it would have been a lot better off. We'd all been a lot better off if we would just not been a part of things. Right? You see how the flesh gets in there? That's the taking your hands off the plow. When the Lord says, when you put your hands to the plow, talking about my work, my calling, don't take them off again. Don't look back. Because if you do, you're not really fit for the work that I've called you for. Because what Jesus will do is he'll say to us, listen, I may call you to leave your family. I'm talking about not necessarily your spouse, but I'm talking about other family members. You don't know where I'm going to send you across the world, but you have to be willing. I remember many conversations where my mom said to me, son, you've been up in Laurel Hill for a lot of years now. When are you coming home? There are a lot of churches down here that could use you. I sure would love to have you back here. And we had a lot of those conversations, and I kept having to tell her, Mom, I understand. But God's called me here. This is where he said to go. And this is where we need to be. All right. Okay. I don't like it much. But okay. And we had like, she'll, if she were here right now, she'd tell you about that. And she'd have a lot more things to say. So it's probably good she's not here. Anyway. <laughs> why, now, why do I say that? Let's go back to that just for a second. Why do I say that? Because you and I both know that family is greatly affected when we follow Jesus, Right? Just because she was the mom of a grown-up person and a married person with children didn't mean that she stopped being mom. She still had a tendency to want me to listen to her because she had my best interest at heart. But you see, that's part of the call. When the Lord says, you have to be willing to follow me even if it requires of you personal relationships because I have to come first, the Lord would say. So it's not wrong. I don't want you to hear that it's wrong to love your family. What's wrong is not that. We're called to love our family. What's wrong is to say it's going to be too hard on them, so let's just let somebody else do it. Think of the ministries across our world that would never have happened if the person who received the call from the Lord or the idea would have said, no, it's just too much. I've often thought about this with, regardless of what you think about him, uh, and he had his ways that people could really get irritated over. But Dr. Falwell, I've often thought if when he first felt God calling him to start Liberty University, or the church even, Thomas Road, and had said, nah, 
that's just going to take a lot out of me. And it'd be too hard on my family. What a tragedy. Now, that's in the midst of all the problems, and I understand all of that, but all that comes with it. What I'm simply saying is you can't say, God, I'll follow you as long as everything goes well. It doesn't work that way. And many people have left their family and friends for serving God at great expense, even their own lives. Great emotional expense, great financial expense. Uh, We felt that over the years. You felt that over the years. We know what that's like. But we do it for one reason. Because he called us. That's it. That's it. Because he called us. And he says, I want you to follow me. No matter what. Some of you will remember Stephen Curtis Chapman dating myself a little bit. He's a guy who was a great singer, Christian singer in my right, my thinking. He wrote a song that some of you are familiar with called For the Sake of the Call. And it goes like this. It was written really about the 12 disciples. And he says, nobody stood and applauded them. So they knew from the start this road would not lead to fame. All they really knew for sure was Jesus had called them and he said, come follow me. And they came. With reckless abandon, they came. Empty nets lying there at the water's edge told a story that few could believe and none could explain. How some crazy fishermen agreed to go where Jesus went with no thought to what they would gain. For Jesus had called them by name and they answered. Drawn like the rivers are drawn to the sea, there's no turning back. For the water cannot help but flow. Once we hear the Savior's call, we'll follow wherever he leads because of the love he has shown. And because he has called us to go, we will answer. Not for the sake of a creed or a cause, not for a dream or a promise, simply because it is Jesus who called. And if we believe, we'll obey. Those are good words. Very accurate words. I think that was certainly, he's got it right. That was the heart of the disciples. They didn't understand fully. We know that. They didn't really even believe fully until after Jesus was resurrected, but yet they went. Why? Because the Lord had called them. So we have to ask, what's the Lord really teaching us through all of this? Well, I think there are several points here in addition to what we've already made, and that is, number one, is that this world is not about us. It's really not. In fact, I think the Lord is saying the church is not even about us. It's not. In no way is the church or the world about us. It's all about God and what he wants. All of it. It's all for his glory. We were created for his glory. And I think that's what people are missing when they leave Jesus, if you will. I think they're, they're looking to Jesus as being what I like to think of as a genie Jesus. right? The genie in the bottle kind of thing. Give me what I want. I'll follow you as long as it feels good, it looks right, everything's going my way. And then as soon as things begin to take a curve or a different route, all of a sudden it's not so fun anymore. That's where the world is. And again, it doesn't matter what home you grew up in. Got two articles here again to prove it. Many others that have come out saying the same thing. It's because this, it's not the Jesus they want. But this is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus who is God. We can make up a lot of Jesuses. 
But there's only one Jesus of the Bible, and this is his name, and this is who he is. So, unfortunately, when Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations, they abandon him and just go about their own way. And so, let's ask ourselves this question as we close this morning, and that is, what's our deal? What's our deal? What's keeping us from fully embracing Jesus and recklessly abandoning everything? I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm talking about entrusting your heart to the one who can hold you for eternity. That's what the people saw in Jesus when they left and followed him. They didn't have the answers. We don't have the answers. But we do know the one who has the answers. Amen? That's what he's looking for, beloved. He's saying to each of us, will you follow me? Okay. If you do, and you're saying you do, like these illustrations here, here's the deal. It's going to look a lot different than what you may have thought it was going to be. But that's my plan. And so I want you to follow me. I was just telling somebody, if you've watched The Chosen, there was one line in there that I love when, I won't spoil it for you, but I just have to give you this one line. It's when Jesus is looking at an unbeliever and he says, I require much out of those whom I call, but very little out of those whom I don't. I love that line because it's true, isn't it? Jesus says, come and follow me. And that's what we're to do. All right, let's pray, pray together. Father, we thank you always for the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you don't hold anything back from us, but you're always so loving you're always so kind. And when you call us to follow us, you're not somehow twiddling your thumb saying, I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. You're not some circus sideshow that's promising people some great riches and some amazing fortune and have no idea of how to fulfill that. Lord, you've already conquered death. You've already been raised from the dead. You've already ascended into the kingdom of heaven and are seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, all you're asking us to do is to give up our lives to follow you so that we will have an eternal life with you. So Lord, here we are and we recommit our lives to you as a church, as a people, and say to you, use us for your glory. No matter what that may mean, as we all take a hard swallow, we gasp a little bit, we kind of stiffen our backs, but yet we fall into the arms of Christ, knowing that we're going to be okay no matter what he asks of us. So Father, thank you for your tender mercies. Thank you for your loving embrace. And Lord, we thank you that you are God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.